Hey, Spotlighters, Mike Cam here, the coolest guy in title insurance and your host of the Morning Spotlight Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. We have a great guest that I know is going to absolutely blow you away. If you like what you hear, please smash that subscribe button and leave us a review. And remember, when it's time for you to purchase title insurance, there's only one guy you should be calling, and that's me. Check the show notes for my email address. And let's get this train rolling and start the show right now. Coffee for today's episode of the Morning Spotlight Podcast was provided by Spotlighter and my girlfriend, Ishmay. Thanks, Ish. If you want to support the show and keep us caffeinated, head on over to themorningspotlight.com and click buy Mike a coffee. Hey, this is Kerry Bringle of Pegleg Porker, and you're listening to the Morning Spotlight with Mike Ham. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cam, coming to you as always from the Spotlight Studios here in Morristown, New Jersey. My guest today is a Nashville native and has been competing in barbecue contests for more than 25 years, and he has the blue ribbons to prove it. He's been honored to cook at the prestigious James Beard House in New York City on multiple occasions, and his restaurant, Peg Leg Porker in Nashville, was quickly named one of the hottest barbecue joints in the country by several media outlets, including the Food Network and the Travel Channel. He's a cancer survivor, created an award-winning bourbon line, and has a new restaurant concept opening in Nashville soon, Bringle's Smoking Oasis. He is Carrie Bringle. Carrie, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate you having me on. I'm, I appreciate you because, listen, there's, I mean, I've reached out to a lot of people going on different trips and all that kind of stuff, and I reached out to you. I just said, hey, I'm a fan. I'm coming to Nashville. I want to come to Peg Lake Porker because I had never been before, and obviously I have the shirt to prove it. And you just said, hey, yeah, just let me know. Give me a buzz when you're in, and we'll sit down and talk, and, and you did. We sat at the bar for probably like 15, 20 minutes, talked about barbecue, bourbon. You know, my girlfriend had no idea anything about barbecue. So she was like, <laughs> this is crazy. But so I just, you know, want to take a quick second just to tell the spotlighters just how cool Carrie, Carrie is just because he he just did that for me, just a guy. So I appreciate that. Hey, no problem. That's some of that Tennessee hospitality we like to show people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fantastic. We don't get a ton of that here up in the Northeast. It's just like we have a little bit of a different vibe, um, you know, but I mean, I, again, I appreciate it. So as so I'm a, a amateur backyard barbecue enthusiast. So a lot of the people that listen to this show are between the ages of 25 and 35. So they're in my, in my age bracket. They're male. They're in the Northeast. They're not exposed to a ton of barbecue joints like yours what are you think and maybe they're interested in getting you know started cooking barbecue what are some you know tips or maybe some uh common mistakes that the unseasoned barbecue man does to make his backyard barbecue that much better yeah i think the biggest uh, the biggest thing that they do is take themselves too seriously so i think that uh you know barbecue is about having fun and about being with friends and family and cooking for those people it, because it takes so long, it gives you time to visit with those folks. And that's one of the things that, uh, that we really, you know, we really value. And so, uh, I mean, and barbecue is not rocket science. It's about time and temperature. And uh, so, you know, if you want to do it right, just follow kind of the math on there. Uh, you know, with a butt, you want to you want to cook it at around 200 to 250. I like to stay in the 220 range. And you want to take it to an internal temperature of 192 degrees. And it's really as simple. Don't don't get too caught up in it. Do you know? Make sure you've got enough time. It could take 16 hours. Uh, you're going to have a stall at 160 degrees. And you know, Mike, all this is available. And I just published a book, Barbecue for Dummies, which you can get on Amazon. It's part of the Four Dummies franchise, and it's it is sort of a good, quick reference guide. You can pick it and go to any chapter that you want without having to read straight through it. And it gives you all those tips and tricks that I wish that I had known when I started out. It's all the things that I learned from trial and error, but now you can, you can get it in a book and have it on your shelf and just pull it out and go, oh, here's a table that tells me exactly what temperature I need this to be at. Right. And I think that, I mean, 
for dummies. So if you're a dummy, go check out Carrie's book. Um, But one of the things that I would say is like, you know, people, I mean, so I've been dabbling in this for, uh, you know, a few years now. Um, You've been cooking competitive barbecue for 25 plus years, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, even even with a book, there's just still some things that you just have to, you know, like you get the trials and tribulations of being a barbecue guy or gal, you know, so there's just some, some things that you maybe can't get from a book. You just got to do it right and make mistakes. No, absolutely. You know, it, it um, nothing is ever a uh, complete failure if not to serve as a bad example. Right. So, uh, you know, you're going to burn some meat. You're going to burn some ribs. You're going to piss off your wife or girlfriend because the dinner's not ready when you said it was going to be. And, uh, you know, just take it all in stride. And as long as you're learning from those mistakes, then you're growing. And so, um, you know, having a reference guide is great. You do need to do some hands-on and sort of get the feel for your particular grill or your particular smoker and learn the ins and outs of it. And, and that's all part of the process. And, and quite frankly, part of the fun. Right. Uh, I, I used to tell aspiring pit masters that they were never a true pit master until they've had a grease fire. And until you've caught a whole smoker on fire and ruined a whole bunch of stuff, you probably not cooked long enough to really call yourself a pit master. Right. And, yeah. uh, it just comes along with the territory. Oh, of course we had one, my dad and I were cooking out one, one day we were cooking a butt and it, uh, we'd use the, the pit barrel smoker and it fell off the hooks like it dried mm-hmm. out at the top, fell off the hooks and just fell down into the coals. And we're like, now what the hell do we do? You know, so we like sure. fished yeah. it out, put it back on the hooks. My mom wasn't home. She came home. We're like, here you go. And she's like, oh, how'd it go? And we're like, great. Totally great. Never, nothing Absolutely. bad happened. She's like, it tastes a little ashy. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but you, uh, so you originally were not like you have, you come from a family of barbecuers, right? And then growing up down in the South, obviously that was something that was part of your uh, life, I would imagine. Um, but you started in IT, right? So was that always, was barbecue always something that was part of your life, you know, growing up? Yeah, so growing up, I had uh, my, my grandfather was an OBGYN. He came from Covington, Tennessee, and he delivered a lot of the children of the barbecue families uh, in Memphis and around the surrounding areas. I learned from my uncle. I learned from my other grandfather, uh, Jack, and I would sit by the, the smoker with him and cook uh, back in. We cooked uh, Country back ribs is what you called them. They're really not a rib at all. They're cut off of the butt. But uh, that was very common back then as a real meaty rib sort of substitute. And so uh, I learned from my family. My grandmother would send me articles of all anything that was in the commercial appeal in Memphis, the local uh, newspaper there about barbecue. And we went to all the best barbecue restaurants, uh, Leonard's and Bozo's and Lewis's store down in Moscow, Tennessee. And uh, so it's, it's been in my family and in my blood. I did, I started my career in healthcare and then moved into IT from a job standpoint. And finally, uh, after a, um, a, a career in IT, I decided that I wanted to start my barbecue uh, restaurant. And I did that, but I had already started the brand before I quit my day job and was building up a reputation for the barbecue uh, by competing in Memphis in May, the world championship, and then a few other odds and end contests out there. And, uh, you know, I went ahead and produced my dry season and my, and my uh, sauce. And that kind of got my foot in the door. And, and uh, you know, I moved, moved up from there. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's very interesting because I just think that it's like everybody's, you know, story and you're, and you're an entrepreneur. I mean, I just laid out a bunch of things that, you know, uh, that you're, that you're up to. I mean, obviously you have the restaurant and the, you know, the, the brands and the bourbon, and we're going to get, try to get into all that over the course of this, of this episode. Um, you know, so I think that that's just really cool that you found something that was, you know, it seemed like it was something that was true to you and you were able to, you know, turn that into, you know, your, your business. Um, so tell me like, what were your first experiences like doing the competitive barbecue scene? You know, you go to the, I mean, I started out doing Memphis in May and, uh, back then it was a lot different than it is now. Uh, but it was still one thing is common is it was a big old party. And uh, that really attracted me to it. I loved the people and I loved the party and it was great. Uh, So, you know, starting in when you first start out, you're interested in barbecue, but you're just as interested in the party. And so you, 
you know, you get a little bit of both. And I would pick up knowledge along the way and along the years. I cooked with a team called Hog Wild for um, probably 12 years with Ernie Meller and Trip Murray uh, there in Memphis. Ernie still has Hog Wild catering. And um, that was a great experience. And that, that helped bring me up to speed and knowing what to do. Even then, sometimes we felt like we were fumbling through it. Um, and then you refine it more and more over the years. And now I think this last year was either my 29th or 30th year at Memphis in May. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it just, you pick up things along the way. If you pay attention, if you get involved with the team, um, you can have fun and also learn along the way. I, I never have taken myself too seriously and I never have gotten too caught up in, um, cooking for judges at Memphis in May. It, it, uh, some of them are great and some of them uh, are just doing it as a hobby on the weekend because they're retired and they've never cooked barbecue before in their life. So you have to, you have to keep that in mind when you, when you do these competitions and understand that generally competition barbecue nowadays is a bastardization of what you would feed to your family and your friends. You're looking for that one bite and for that special you know, something that sets you apart. Uh, whereas um, when you cook for your family and friends, you need something that's very edible uh, and they can eat a large portion of. Right. So they're, they're two different, two different things. And um, people, people can get caught up in thinking that one equals the other, but I can tell you from experience, they just don't, they're very different. Uh, traditionally, it, it didn't used to be like that when Memphis and May first started. You would cook what you'd cook for your friends and your family. You'd throw it in a box. You'd do your on-site judging, and that was it. Now people are using all kinds of techniques and different uh, rubs and sauces to try and achieve their optimal flavor profile that the judges have been trained on. And what the judge has been trained on may not necessarily be the style of barbecue that you cook. So it's a, it's a finesse that you have to get. Some people get it down and do very well with it. And some people don't, you know, Chris Lilly is a master at understanding exactly what the judges want out of his barbecue. And, um, you know, I, I, I've done well sometimes, but I've also <laughs> done not well many times. And so it can be a real crap shoot. And if, if you're hanging your self-esteem on a competition like that, you're barking up the wrong tree. You need to do barbecue because you enjoy barbecue and you do it for the love of it and the camaraderie and not because you want to be number one uh, in the world um, of competition. I mean, that, that's, that's great if you've got that drive and you want to do it, but that doesn't always equate into being successful in the restaurant business. And I could cite you several examples of that, but they probably wouldn't want me talking about them here. <laughs> Yeah, we won't we won't bring them up. They they probably don't listen to the show anyway, so it's all good. Yeah. But um, and it's just funny, like you know, you got into competition barbecue for the barbecue side and the party side, and the first team that you're competing with is called Hog Wild, which I think just encapsulates probably yeah. how that group probably operated. Um, yeah. But uh, but so is Memphis in May is is really just kind of a its own unique kind of barbecue competition, right? Because I think some of the other ones you know that exist in the world are a little bit more you know buttoned up and formal. Whereas Memphis and May seems like it's a little bit more let your hair down kind of deal. Memphis and May is let your hair down, but it's all, I mean, it's a serious competition. It is the world championship for pork barbecue. And there's really no other competition that can touch it from that standpoint. Um, it's expensive to compete. Uh, it keeps getting more expensive. Um, but uh, the teams that are there are big boys. Even the local teams that compete in Memphis and May have big rigs. These, uh, you know, one thing I've found from going to other competitions is a lot of them are the mom and pop and they're traveling around and they've got a couple of Weber bullets or a couple of big green eggs and it's very affordable and easy to do. Uh, I can tell you that the big boys uh, go to play at Memphis in May uh, because you got to have, you got to have a lot of money and you got to have a big rig and you got to be able to hang with the biggest names in barbecue. And, um, but it, it, they do allow you to have fun. And uh, I've been to some competitions where they tried to cut us off at 10 o'clock at night and told me it's quiet time. And that, that did not go well with me and my crew. Uh, I did the first competition I went to here in Nashville and it was a, it was the first competition we did as the peg leg porkers. And uh, 
that organizer was a friend of mine. I actually was borrowing his cooker and uh, somebody was cooking next to me and uh, they kept complaining because they went to bed about 10 o'clock and we kept partying through the night and then somebody said, you need to be quiet. And I said, what are you talking about? This is a barbecue competition. I thought we we're here to have a good time. And they were like, well, this is a, it's quiet time. And I said, not where I come from. It ain't damn quiet time. We party all damn night. We may <laughs> yeah. stay up just to present to the judges. I may not have even gone to sleep at all. And they said, well, that doesn't, doesn't happen here. We're going to may have to throw you out. And I said, well, you're going to look pretty silly. I borrowed your cooker to do this competition. You're going to look like a fool. And right. so we ended up not getting kicked out. We did piss off our neighbor, uh, who, who now is a good friend of mine. Turned out it was Ray Lampy. We didn't even know each other back then. But uh, we had a few words with each other that night. And uh, uh, he's a great guy and, uh, and, and a good friend. And he's got a new restaurant down in Tampa that's great. And so... You know, you take it all with a grain of salt. The KCBS competitions are much more strict on quiet time and kind of this rule set. And the MBN circuit competitions are a lot more loose as far as that goes, but they're all pork. Right. So you mentioned also like, you know, going to these events and people trying to achieve that like perfect flavor profile that the judges have been trained on. And I've heard you talk about before. Like, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, you bring your your style, right? You're just like, Hey, I'm Carrie Bringle. Here you go. Eat this. You're going to love it. Or do you try to get into the weeds with those other people that are trying to really nail that flavor profile? Yeah. I mean, we change it. Look, I, I serve a Tennessee uh, straight dry rib. That's what I serve at, uh, um, at the restaurant. And that's our specialty. We've done it at a few competitions and it generally doesn't go well because the judges just don't understand a true dry rib. They, they, They've been told what a dry rib is by other people who don't know how to make a dry rib themselves. And so 90% of the pitmasters out there who think they know what a dry rib is actually have no idea. And, um, you know, they think that rubbing, uh, rubbing a, a dry rub on the, on the rib and then cooking it and serving it with no sauce is a dry rib. That, that may be a great rib. That's not a West Tennessee style dry rib. The style was invented by the Vergas family, who are actually Greek, with the Rendezvous restaurant. And they charbroil theirs, and we smoke ours. That's the difference between us and the Rendezvous. But we both follow the same technique of really not putting anything on that rib, except for maybe a mop, a vinegar-based mop, uh, while it's smoking or char-grilling. And then the seasoning, it's a barbecue seasoning, not a rub, goes on that rib after it comes off the pit so you get the brightness of the spices and you get the full flavor of the pork and not many pit masters understand that or know that um and and so you know judges can't get they can't wrap their head around what a true dry rib is supposed to be right yeah and i think it's also interesting like you, you start out with just salt right you just put salt on your ribs you put them in your smoker and you cook them right That's right yeah, we smoke them over hickory. Yeah, and I think that's another thing too. Like when we were talking about earlier about the dummies that are trying to figure out how to smoke stuff, they're just like, "Well, I saw this guy use this sauce and this sauce and this rub, and I got to try to do this." And it almost takes away from just like the the essence of like the meat. Like if you're smoking ribs, you want to taste the rib, right? Like you don't want to taste all these different things to cook for your family. Learn how to cook the pork first. And then after you learn how to cook the pork, then start messing around with the different seasonings. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's about the meat first and foremost and understanding what's happening with the meat, how it's rendering out, how the collagen and connective tissues are breaking down and at what temperatures they're doing that. Once you understand that, then, um, then you can mess around with any flavor profile you want. And everybody's got different taste buds. I can't tell you what you do or don't like. That's the tough thing about competitions is trying to uh, figure out what the judge does and doesn't like. They may love a dry rib and may know it just as well as I do, but uh, I won't know that until I feed them one or don't feed them one. Right. Yeah. So um, also we were talking about, about these barbecue competitions, you know, as you started out and, you know, you're cooking with other teams and then eventually started your own team, like the, the, the cost uh, you know, the cost barrier really to a lot of these things is, is high. And you said that it keeps getting higher. So is it one thing where like, if you have no shot at winning or like you think you have no shot at winning, like 
why would anyone start this process? Because I feel like, is there a prize money at the end? And if you're not winning, does it, you know, does it matter? Like, is this more of like a brand building thing? Like how, how do you kind of approach uh, some of these, uh, you know, uh, barbecue competitions? Yeah. So, you know, um, people, people used to ask me, well, what do you win if you win Memphis in May? And I used to always tell them not nearly as much as it cost me to get here. So, uh, you know, it, uh, some people go and and, and make a living doing competition and they do well at it. Um, and some people are very good at that. Melissa Cookston was very good at that. Heath Riles has been very good at that. They're both close friends of mine and both good, you know, good folks. Uh, that that they they set their mind to do that and that's what they did uh, and that's great uh, that was never my goal in mind for me it was more about building a brand and and now as you've seen that has become a full lifestyle brand we have the restaurant we're about to open another restaurant then we'll open another in the airport and then we have clothing we have a line of smokers we have a spirits company that's now distributed in 12 states and so for me, it's about the long game and about a full peg leg porker brand and experience. We want our customers to want to be involved with every aspect of peg leg porker that we come out with. And uh, for other people, it's strictly about the contest or it's strictly about a sauce or it's about a rub. Memphis in May is a great platform to go down and meet people, barbecue people, our family. Uh, we treat each other well. 99% of us get along great. And so you can make connections and, you know, and they're very open people at, at least at Memphis in May or in the competitions that I've done, you know, I'm not hiding my stuff. I'm not covering it up when I'm doing it. You walk in my booth and I'll show you exactly what I'm doing. I don't care because no matter if I give you the recipe or not, you're probably not going to do it exactly like me. Right. So, um, but there are people down there that I can go talk to that may have experience in something that I don't and vice versa. They come talk to me and I can give them advice on what they may want to do or not. I've, I've mentored a lot of people and I enjoy that. And I think most of the people in the barbecue world enjoy that. And I've learned from a lot of people in the field. And most of that's occurred at, at events like Memphis and May or other similar type events. Right. And I think find that really interesting too, because you ever take some of that stuff maybe that you've learned because you said you've been going for so long and I feel like barbecue is just one of those things, like we said before, with the experience side of it, you may learn something now that you were just like, holy shit, I didn't know that, you know I mean? Like, or just something that you try to do something. And then do you ever take that back? Maybe it's to the restaurant. Do you take it back to the, um, you know, the, the competition stuff? Do you ever try to implement those things into your own styles? Absolutely. I mean, you may not, I may not implement it into my own style, but it may be a piece of business advice or something that helps. You know, um, we've got Kool-Aid pickles on our menu because one of my buddies, uh, Craig Blondis, suggested that I put them on the menu. He owns uh, Central Barbecue in Memphis, and we're close friends, and we're competitors, but also good friends. And, um, you know, we want to see each other succeed. There's room in this market for both of us. And so... um, it was a, a good item that's profitable that people like and, and are curious about. And so those little tidbits and, I, and I'll tell people things that I think they ought to put on their menu that we've had good experience with and that, and that are, are money makers. And so it's that camaraderie and that sense of fellowship that really makes the barbecue community uh, just one of the best in the restaurant world. Right. And, and so like, you know, again, for the people that, you know, are new to barbecue and could be interested in doing like competition level stuff, and obviously maybe scared off from some of like the, the price tags and all that stuff. So are there ways that someone like me or someone that listens to this show could get involved in competition barbecue without being like, hey, we're doing the morning spotlight barbecue team and we're going to go head down to Memphis in May and compete with Carrie Bringle and kick his ass. Like, is there ways to get involved in that? outside of that yeah Yeah. if you go and join an organization like the kcbs they've got competitions all over the country so chances are they've got one in your neighborhood they're very affordable to do Uh, they've got good prize money Uh, and so i would suggest you go do a competition like that first i would join somebody else's team and kind of see how it goes with them and, and get your feet wet and then start your own team and go do it uh on your own but they're they're fun. They're, uh, they're not as expensive as something like a Memphis in May. Uh, you could probably make it to several of them within a hundred to 200 mile radius of where you live and, um, get some experience that way. Right. 
Yeah. So also, I mean, I've heard you talk before, like, I, you know, read articles and stuff like that about like styles of barbecue and how people say like, well, this isn't barbecue, this is barbecue. Um, so I just be interested because obviously there's a lot of different regions and different styles and all that kind of stuff. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, the styles of barbecue and like what that really means in the grand scheme of things. Well, you know, there's a there's an ever growing list of styles now. I would tell you that the main styles are going to be North Carolina, West Tennessee, uh, Texas, and Kansas City are going to be the most prevalent or dominant styles uh, that you're going to find out there. But there's also a lot of subgenres. There's Georgia barbecue. There's North Alabama barbecue. Um, you know, and now you've got stuff popping up in New York City and New Jersey, all around the country, Denver, and um, and then even like over in Australia and in the UK, they're having a big renaissance of uh, American barbecue that they're really involved in love. And so, uh, and, and people are popping up with their own types of styles. So they're, they're melding multiple styles together to come up with something unique. You know, my buddy, Michael Simon has come out with Cleveland style barbecue with mother, you know, with Mabel's and, um, and so, you know, he was bold enough to say, hey, look, I want to start my own genre. It's kind of my own thing. And this is how I like to do it. And, you know, that's great. It, uh, uh, there is, you know, there, there's a lot of great barbecue out there. And, and one of the things that we say to our customers is it's not a requirement for you to hate somebody else's barbecue in order to love mine. And, um, you know, you're generally going to like what you grew up with. That's going to be your favorite. Uh, in most instances, but as you travel around the country, I think what you'll find is that there's so many different styles and there's so many that you like that it's hard to pick out a favorite. Uh, we've been named and been blessed to be named on a lot of lists as best barbecues, uh, you know, in the country, but we don't always make that list. Everybody's taste buds are different. And, right. uh, and so, uh, and, and you certainly can have bad days where your barbecue is not as great as it should be. Uh, you know, or that you want it to be. Running a restaurant's a tough business and, uh, you know, trying to put out 400 racks of ribs that are all consistent on any given day is not an easy task for anybody. Right. Yeah, 100%. Even doing two in the backyard is not yeah. an easy task. They're going to be different from week to yeah. week or month to month. And I know that from experience for sure. Um, so also, you you said you have a line of smokers. And as I was doing my research and clicking around the internet, and there's a lot of Carrie Bringle on the internet, but I stumbled yeah. upon videos on YouTube of you building. You looked a lot younger. I'm just going to say yeah. that right right no, out of the yeah, gate. I was. No. <laughs> yeah. You building a smoker from a refrigerator. Yes. So did you have like a, I mean, did you say like, screw it, I'm going to try to like make this old refrigerator that's just, you know, like crappy and all, you know, whatever into a smoker? Did you, did you, had you built smokers before, before you put this one up on YouTube? No, we had, we had not. I, we, you know, I, uh, we built several refrigerator smokers. And so I, I can tell you all about that. And you can go look at my video series on YouTube. It's me and my right leg man, Dresh. Uh, in my driveway with my kids running around. Uh, you know, these were probably 10, 12 years ago. We shot these videos and um, uh, we're, we're welding smokers that I designed. Dresh was a master welder. And uh, so we started building smokers in the driveway and just testing out different designs and different ways that we could do it. And, um, you know, we, we don't, I don't, I regret I don't have one of those left because I burned one of them down. It had an aluminum body. I had a pit fire and burnt that son of a bitch. I almost burnt my house down. I had flames about 30 feet in the, in the air. And, uh, and then um, the other one, I think we finally scrapped, but uh, uh, it was so heavy, but they were great. You know, they were great. And the series was great. We've gotten views from all around the world. I've gotten people that have sent me pictures that they've built because they were inspired by those smokers. The current smoker that we sell, the BMF 200, uh, we sell through Sunterra.pro, uh, and you can check it out. It's a, it's a Kerry Brangle BMF 200. It's a hell of a smoker, weighs about 1,600 pounds. It's a reverse flow vertical smoker uh, that's built like a tank and will cook up to 260-pound whole hogs at once. And we can get about a 10 hour burn on a single bag of charcoal and two sticks of hickory. Um, so it's very efficient. Uh, it's a great smoker. 
and and we're proud of it. It's uh, but we don't the the last smoker build that we did or in the video series we shot in HD, and you can see that. I think there's either three or four segments of us building one of those BMF 200s from scratch. We still have that smoker, and um, you know it's something that we can still use and and. Uh, uh, we had a lot of fun building smokers and we learned a lot about smokers and I studied a lot about fireboxes and combustion that, that most people don't get into, but I was obsessed and, uh, and it was something fun to do. Yeah, no, it seemed, it seemed very interesting. Cause I mean, like, you know, you read like the, the things about people making them out of old, like uh, propane tanks and all that sure. kind of stuff, like, you know, the offset smokers and different things like that. Um, but I mean, I had heard about that and then found that video on the internet. And I was just so like intrigued. I was like, he's going to make a smoker out of a refrigerator. Cause I, yeah. I think you said, and I, I listened to a different podcast and you said that it was a refrigerator from a bar that you guys drank at. Right. And it was just like, so, they were getting rid yeah. of the fridge. The first one was, yeah, the first one was a refrigerator that uh, had been in the uh, bar that was called the End Zone uh, there in Green Hills in Nashville, and we drank there. I went every Thursday night for years and years and years, and uh, we pulled up one day, and that refrigerator was sitting out back, and Joe was bitching about having to pay somebody to haul it off, and I was like, hey, I'll haul that shit off for you for free, you know, and uh I took it to my driveway and we, I started to pull it apart. And luckily it had, it was old enough to where it had like fiberglass batting insulation in it. If you get a hold of one that's got spray foam insulation in it, throw it away. You can't use that to build a smoker. That is uh, uh, polystyrene, I think, uh, insulation. And it is very toxic and you don't want to screw with it at all. Yeah. Uh, just good, a little good tip for the for the dummies. Don't do that. Yeah. Just even trying to get it out of there is a nightmare. The second smoker, the one that that because uh, the, the first one had an offset firebox. That's the one that I burn up in a fire. Uh, the next one that we did out of a refrigerator, I found this cool stainless steel refrigerator, and the compressor had been in the bottom of it, and so we were able to put the firebox in the bottom of it, and that was a great smoker for a while that we loved, but, uh, I think we finally retired it and scrapped it. Right. Yeah. What does, um, BMF stand for? It's a bad motherfucker. So, uh, <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be like big it. motherfucker or bad um, motherfucker. I wasn't yeah, sure. I don't know if yeah. I could, I didn't know if I could say that on your show, but that's well, what it yeah. stands for. All right. Yeah. Well, we're already, we already yeah. did it. So it, it's it a happened. beast of a cooker. I tell you, it's a, it's, it's a great smoker. My buddy Tank Jackson cooks on one. He named his general George Washington. And, uh, uh, it is a, it is one of the best smokers on the market. If you want like a whole hog cooker, or it'll cook about 50 butts. Um, but uh, it's not as much of a rib cooker. But, I mean, it do ribs fine, but it's really more for whole hog and butts. My buddy Billy Terrell with um, the Beached Pig just took uh, fifth place at Memphis in May this year on his BMF 200. Uh, Tank has won a bunch of awards with his. We've taken third place in the world on ours. Uh, and so... Uh, if you want one or you want to look it up, like I said, go to sunterra.pro and look for the BMF 200. Um, they're not cheap, but it'll last you for a while. Awesome. So um, also in this answer, you mentioned Dresh, and I met Dresh because he sat at the bar with us when we came down to the restaurant. Um, yeah. And you call him your right leg man and, and all that kind of stuff. So talk to me about like the importance of the team, not necessarily like the competition team, but just like the, the team that you have at the Peg Leg Porker, you know, and trying to grow this brand because it's, you know, you can't do it all yourself. So talk to me about the yeah. importance of that. Yeah, well, I'm lucky. We've got a great team. We treat our people right. And so most of them stay with us for a long time. If they leave us, it's typically that they're leaving for some other opportunity or they're moving that, that's unrelated to barbecue. Um, and I think you really have to treat your people right, especially in this day and time. It's tough to pick up employees in the restaurant world right now. Uh, but Dresh has been with me. He cooked with me uh, down in Memphis in May for 10 years. He's a master welder. Uh, he he welded the first smoker that I designed, and then we recruited him to the team. He became my firebox man. He was the best firebox man I'd ever seen. He really understood how to regulate the temperature, and that's invaluable. When I decided I was going to open the restaurant, he said he wanted to quit welding. 
and he was interested in coming to work with me at the restaurant. And um, so I, I, I put him on payroll before I ever put myself on it. And he's been with me ever since. Uh, I don't need a right hand, man. I got a, I got a right and a left hand, but I'm missing a right leg. So that's why I need a right leg, man. And um, Tresh is one of the best. And, and, and so it's invaluable to build a team like that, people that you can trust that are around you and people that get the job done and understand what it takes to keep the quality up and have just as much pride in it as you do. Uh, the, the, the thing that I would say is if you find somebody that understands the flavor profile that you're working with and that you, and that you can work with and, and have a good dialogue with and that doesn't want to change that, then that's where you have a great person. So I've cooked with a lot of people and I've had several people break off from my team because they wanted to do things differently. And when somebody wants to do something different, you need to say, all right, well, you kind of owe it to yourself to go explore that and move on. Uh, and because my product is my product, that's what it is. I developed this mine and I own this business. The thing about somebody like Dresh is Dresh never, he loved the profile that I had. So he never wanted to change what we were doing he was proud of what we were doing, and that's why we've had a, a great relationship and a great working relationship is because he understood and liked and appreciated the profile and didn't want to go out and do his own separate thing. And right. they, some people do, and if they do, they just need to move on. They owe it to their team captain to move on, and they owe it to themselves to move on. And, and let me tell you, being a, a team captain that, spawns some other shoot offshoot teams there's nothing more proud ernie meller and i have a great relationship we talk on a you know on a monthly basis uh who was my original team captain and i i wanted to do something different and so i broke off and ernie was the most supportive guy that he ever could have been and so i try and do that to the people that want to break off from what i'm doing Right. So I, I want to get into the peg leg porker brand here in a minute, but you did mention in that, like the right leg man thing. And I mentioned at the, in the bio read that you're a cancer survivor. So you had a, a yes. rare bone cancer, right. When you were a kid that took your right leg. So like, what was, what was that like? I mean, that's gotta be terrifying, right. As a kid. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you not, I, I've never experienced anything like that, but I would imagine it would be. Well, it makes you get your priorities, right. You know, it, uh, um, I, I discovered that I had bone cancer the summer before my senior year, and um, uh, it was a it was a shocker, uh, you know. But uh, I, I was I had a very good support system with my mother and my sister and my friend friends and family and church, and um, so that was a huge help. And and I went through eight months of intense chemotherapy and lost all my hair and lost forty pounds and. It was right at that time when I should have been having the best time of my life, my senior year. But, uh, uh, you know, it's all how you look at it and it's all how you approach it. I'm a very lucky man. Uh, I, I have people come in this restaurant every week who've lost a child to osteogenic sarcoma. And, uh, and I've been fortunate to meet a lot of survivors of osteogenic sarcoma. And so um, and right now we're raising money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Uh, so. You know, it, it's something that I believe in and, and anywhere where I can support somebody, uh, I try to. And we do a, a lot of charity work because, you know, people have been very charitable to me and, and uh, were very supportive of me. And I, I believe you just need to kind of pass that on and, and pay it forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we actually, uh, it's funny that you mentioned the LLS because we had um, a kid from Long Island who was like in the running to try to be like the man of the year for the LLS. He was trying to raise money. So we had him on the show and gave him a chance to like talk to the audience and hopefully raise some money for, you know, awareness and all that kind of stuff. So it was just interesting that you mentioned that because we we did that a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, that's, exa that's exactly what I'm doing right now. Yeah, I'm right. I'm for man of the year here in Nashville. Yeah. But you awesome. got to raise the most money. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, easy. the man of the year, easy, most yeah. money. Yeah, definitely yeah. not easy. Um, so, okay. Let's talk about the brand now, because I think obviously that, you know, experience and just like knowing you and talking to you for probably all together, maybe an hour between our short conversation at the bar at your restaurant. And so far talking to you here on the podcast is just like just your outlook on life and Peg Lake Porker, I guess, reading from this press kit that I got prior was your nickname prior to it actually being the brand, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, people didn't call me Peg Leg right, Porker. They might face. call me yeah. Peg Leg, or they might call yeah. me Hoppy, or whatever. I, I didn't bother me. I mean, my friends, my friend group, you better have tough skin if you go yeah. hang with us, because you're getting messed with constantly. And so, um, which is which is great. We had to come up with a team name when we did that first competition where we almost got kicked out, and we had to come up with a team name. And so, Peg Leg Porker was the team name that I came up with and that's where the brand was started. And I had, I had started companies from, uh, you know, high school on up through college. And so I was an entrepreneur and that was something that was, uh, important to me. And so when I, when I viewed the peg leg pork, I never viewed it as just a sauce or just a rub or just a competition team or just a restaurant. I always viewed it as a brand. I'm, I was a marketing major. I've been in sales since I was 13. And so for me, it was all about building a complete brand with branches that can go global, uh, but always having a home base that is one restaurant. And I don't, there'll be one peg leg porker restaurant. I don't anticipate doing any more peg leg porker restaurants. We might do other restaurants, but as far as the peg leg porker brand goes, we wanted to have one home base and that's here in Nashville on Glebe street. And, um, and so that's how I've built the brand is that we can sell smokers around the world. We can sell clothing, we can sell liquor, we can do any of that globally. But if you want to come and eat a peg leg porker, you're going to find it in one place. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it's very interesting because I mean, we talk a lot on this show, whether it's, you know, people in business or marketers or whatever, even starting a podcast, which you have a podcast, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but like everything really is trying to build a brand that people can trust. And I think that that is one of the things why people trust that brand so much is just because they don't see it everywhere. Like there's not a peg like Porker, you know, like in New York City and, you know, all these other big cities just try to like the money grab type thing. But it's just like it, it just seems like a very genuine type of brand because it has like you have your logo on stuff. Like you said, you got the bourbon and, you know, whatever else you have going on, the clothing lines, obviously. And I think that that's important, but it just, you know, it all comes back to the home base. And I think that that's really cool and a, and a very interesting way to kind of look at it and grow that brand. Um, so let's talk about stuff that's part of that brand. So you're now you have an award-winning, so you're an award-winning barbecue cooker, chef. You call yourself a chef? No, no, I'll do pit master. Pit master. Yeah. Why couldn't I think of that? It's just the yeah. brain fart thing. Um, <laughs> this is the second episode of the afternoon. So, you know, maybe I'm not firing yeah. on all cylinders. Yeah. No um, so award-winning pit master, but at the same time, now you've gotten into, uh, a bourbon line. So was yes. that always something that you anticipated was going to be part of the brand or was just like, Hey, I like drinking. Why not start a bourbon brand? How does that work? No, it was anticipated. So, um, with the peg leg porker team, we've been sponsored by Jim Beam black for probably 15 or 18 years. We've always worked with beam, uh, and had a great relationship with those guys. Uh, I wanted to do something with them like a collaboration and it just never came about. They're a very, very large company and trying to get something like that going is just not easy. Um, so I had an opportunity to purchase a batch of bourbon and uh, it was right after I started the restaurant. And so I did that. The person who introduced me to the Bean brand uh, called me about this batch of bourbon. I developed a process where we filter it through hickory charcoal, which makes it unique to peg leg porker. Uh, and so uh, we've been doing it ever since. We've won, you know, levels at all medals at all different levels for our white label, gray label, black label, and our pitmaster reserve. We just won a platinum at the SIP Awards, plus a double gold for package design and the innovation award. Um, we've won a double gold with our uh, with our twelve year old, and also a platinum at San Francisco World Spirits and at uh, of the SIP Awards. And so. It's something that's a passion. I always loved bourbon. I always wanted to be in that business. It goes along with barbecue quite well. I think I'm the only pitmaster in the world that actually owns a spirits company. And, you know, the other thing is about this, about the whole thing and about the brand is that we're 100% independent. I don't have any backers. I don't have any investors. I don't have any partners. It is me and my family. And uh, that's it. And, um, so when you talk about independent restaurants or when you talk about 
being an entrepreneur, uh, I've done it multiple ways. And um, this time I'm, I'm going it alone. And it's been the most successful venture that I've done because I've trusted more in myself and uh, what I've learned along the way and learned from the mistakes along the way. But uh, I would encourage you to go out and support your local restaurant. And there's a lot of gray area on what's local and what's not, because I can tell you that the big restaurant groups want every piece of you to think that they are local when they are not. (laughs) That happens a lot. They want to hide their ownership. And the reason they want to hide their ownership is because you'll find out that they're not as independent or not as local as they claim to be. And, And it's not a, it's not, they're not bad people. They're not, you know, they may produce great food. There is a difference, though, between somebody that's put 100% of everything they own on the line uh, and going it alone with no co-signers and, and people who take on, you know, corporate money or partnerships. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's another, you know, great point, too, as we talk about, like, all the stuff that you, that you have going on. So when you, you said you developed the process of filtering the bourbon through uh, hickory charcoal. That's correct. Did, did you have, like, any experience with that? Or was that just like, Hey, what if we put it through this stuff and just like figured it out? Or, or is it more of like a working with other people? Like, how does that, how's that, how's it happen? No, everybody was expecting me to do a smoked bourbon. And I said, look, and I hadn't had a smoked drink that I ever thought was worth a shit. So I've had smoked beers. I've had smoked liquors. I've had smoked malted liquors and all of them are bitter or acrid or too rich. They just got it's the part of the smoke that you really don't want because what happens is they use white smoke. They don't understand the process of smoking. They don't understand where the pollutants are and where that bitter acrid taste can come from. And so, you know, they're either brewers or they're distillers and they just don't get it. Yeah. When you understand the process of smoke and where the flavor and where the pollutants or the bitterness comes from, then you can, then you can, you know, de- better develop a way to do it. And so my, my theory was, hey, when we de-barrel this bourbon, not before it goes in the barrel, so a Tennessee whiskey would be filtered through sugar maple charcoal before it goes in the barrel uh, with, a, uh, with my product. It, we de-barrel it and then run it through hickory charcoal as the last step of the process. We're wanting to pick up a little bit of that barbecue flavor without picking up the bitterness or the acridness of the smoke. And so we've sort of, we've burnt those coals down and then we've washed them so that uh, we're picking up just the flavor profile that we want from that and not, uh, you know, the bad parts of the smoke. Right. Very interesting. I think, I mean, just very cool. Like it's like a science thing and it just, you know, like, there you go. I mean, uh, who would have thought of that? But you, well, obviously you. So, um, but uh, I w- let's talk about the podcast real quick from live from BS corner. Uh, yeah. Was this just something like, just like, Hey, we're just going to, let's just do a podcast. Or was this something was a calculated part of, of uh, part of building the overall brand? No, it was, I mean, the podcast started with me going, Hey, let's do a podcast. And then we tried, we did the first one. It rambled on too much. And so I was like, hey, we got we to gotta do something here. We need to get more of a format. And so we went with a format. We started doing them. Uh, and we haven't done one in a couple of months. That's been the biggest problem is trying to be consistent about it. And, uh, and we'll get better at that. Uh, but I think we've done something like 32 episodes. Uh, they're funny. If you like, they're not for kids. So don't <laughs> no, uh, they're not. Kids on. They're not. If you get your feelings hurt easily, don't listen to them. Uh, but if you like to have a good time and hear some great stories, we've had some fascinating guests on uh, anywhere from Russ Grimm, who's one of the original Washington Redskin Hogs and was the Titans uh, defensive uh, uh, line coach to, um, you know, we've had James Beard award winning chefs like Donald Link on there. Uh, so we've had then we had the manager, uh, my buddy Shane's uncle. Uh, Bud Smith, who managed the Grand Ole Opry stage for 40 years. So we've had some uh, some great folks on, and there's some great stories. Uh, and uh, it's a fun podcast. We need to get back to doing it on a regular basis, but we have fun with most of the stuff that we do, and the podcast is no different. Yeah, yeah. 
You can find it on Spotify or on iTunes or on our website, but it's live from DS Corner. And we most of them, most of them were done on Bullshit Corner right there at the corner of my bar while the restaurant was open and while there was traffic all around us. Yeah, which I think is also really cool because it's like live and you guys are just doing your thing and, and chatting. And, you know, I don't know if you know this stat, but most podcasts that start don't make it past episode seven. So 32, I mean, you're bull, you blew by that. And yeah. so, I mean, but now it's just the consistency side of it, which is, that's yeah, the hardest part. We got to get back to it. So, right. and, 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 and mainly it's building a permanent booth. I've got all my gear on a cart. We have to wheel it out and set it all up. And just, it's usually the night that we want to be drinking. And so, uh, you know, it kind of, it's like a chore interrupting your drinking when you, <laughs> and when you don't want it to be, I mean, we want to drink on the podcast, but, we don't want it to interrupt our drinking, you know? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Right. You got to have your priorities in order. Absolutely. You know? If one Absolutely. Th- if, that, if the podcasting is going to take away some, from something that important, you know, yeah. you got to be able to, to put it on the back burner for now. So, um, yeah. So I, I also, you mentioned at that at some point in there that you had a James Beard award-winning chef on the show. And yeah. I know that you've cooked at the James Beard house uh, twice, three times, three times, yeah. three times. Um, so, there's just that was never a thing like people back in you know when the james beard house first started like really pitmasters were not invited to come cook at the james beard house right, right. but there just yeah. seems to be and i don't know what the time frame is but this renaissance of barbecue in the in the world really and people yeah. getting interested in it and trying to connect with you know brands like yours and learn more about it and try to you know figure out how to make great barbecue for their families and all that kind of stuff like do you think there's like what what do you think the reason behind that is is it just the social aspect or is there something deeper uh, you know I, I think it's a social aspect you had some key chefs they got into barbecue and started kind of touting it and touting some of the pit masters. And, you know, it's interesting because I mean, I've never, I don't, I have people call me chef all the time. I'm like, look, I'm not a chef. I just cook barbecue. I'm not, you know, I didn't go study and train to know how to make all the different classic sauces and stuff. And, um, but you know, what, what we do is different it's not, it's not less, it's different. And so, um, you know, I've got a lot of reverence for chefs and have a lot of chef friends and a lot of them have a lot of reference for what I do and what some of my peers do. And, you know, um, some of them are getting into it and, and, you know, some are, you know, tout all these different things and you get a lot of people that are, Oh, it has to be done this way. And it has to be done. You know, if it's not done this way, it's not real barbecue. And I'm like, look, you know, just go you don't you don't even know what you're talking about you're you don't you can't put yourself in a box you know and and try and act like you know what barbecue is it, it, my buddy mike mills used to say it you know if you didn't invent fire you didn't invent barbecue i mean it's not your right and it's not your place to define what is or isn't barbecue and so um, that's where I think some of these people get it wrong and some of these people want to, you know, try and pigeonhole somebody like us. So, you know, I've, I've got a line of smokers. I've built a bunch of smokers. I've designed the hog pits that are on, that are on the front of my restaurant. And, um, you know, I've cooked with every different style and genre. And I get people that call my restaurant and are like, you know, do you cook over all wood all the time? And I'm like, no, we don't. Uh, you know, we do cook over wood, and uh, but we have rotisserie smokers that are commercial smokers that are gas assist. And, you know, some people are like, well, that's not real barbecue. And I say, well, you know, go fuck yourself. You for a living. I don't, you know, I know what real barbecue is because I cook it every day. And right. you can my ratings or you can go look at, you know, our reviews and you can come and taste it. Yep. Judge me by what's on the plate, not by how I get there. I'm not telling the most famous chefs in the world that they're by using sous vide that they're not really cooks. Uh, you know, it's not my place. That's not what I do for a living. Right. And if I like their food, if it's on my plate and it's great, then I want to eat it. And that's what I'm going to judge. I'm not going to go back there and criticize their techniques. And the same goes for pitmasters. And it's the same world that I'm in in bourbon. You know, you get some people that say, well, you're a non-distilling producer. You know, you're just, you don't really 
that's not really a spirits company. And I said, well, again, go fuck yourself. Why don't you go start one yourself and uh, tell me how it's done? Because it's this is a very difficult business. You better have deep pockets and you better have a good temperament and you better have big balls in order to get it done. I mean, it's you think because you and your Uncle Joe started something in your garage that people want it. Well, they don't. They don't care about that. You think that they want non-GMO products. Well, you know what? Most people don't care. They want something that tastes great and they want to know that it's got an authentic story to it. And they want to know that the person that's selling it to them is a real deal. And that's what I try and do is just be straight up and honest with everything that I do. And, you know, I tell people exactly how we cook it. And I say, look, if we do a whole hog, I can shovel coals all night. I've done it a million times. When I'm trying to feed 1,200 people in a day, I need these commercial pits to be able to do that and do it consistently. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said on the Ugly Delicious uh, series, don't tell me how to cook my shit. I'm the expert. You're not. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And that was, you know, I, I, that's a great show. Love that show. Um, so uh, before we get into our closing segment, because we got about 10 minutes left, and I'm not going to keep you longer than I said I would. Um, I want to, I, I always ask people, especially entrepreneurs like yourself about goals, because obviously you have, you know, like a lot of things going on. It's not just like, cause people know when I went to Nashville, somebody called me from, you know, an organization I'm a part of. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm on vacation. I'm in Nashville. Um, you know, like, Oh, like, what are you doing in Nashville? I'm like, well, today we're going to go over to peg leg porker. They're like, peg leg porker. They're like, I go, you know, usually before COVID would go a couple times a year for work or whatever. And every yeah. time I go, I would go there. Um, but it, it's like, we've just discussed a lot of different ways that the peg leg porker brand is much more than that. So tell me maybe if you have some goals, even over the course of the next year, I know you have the restaurant opening up, uh, Bringles, uh, smoking oasis is the name of it. Um, right. you know, and trying to do some more things moving forward. So what are some things that you're hoping to accomplish, uh, you know, uh, you know, over the next year or so? Yeah. I mean, we want to get the new restaurant open and have it be successful. That's one of the one of our big goals and so that's that's what's for, foremost on our mind right now at the end of the year we're doing a partnership in the airport with delaware north and we'll open a a new place in there called pig star it'll be in the b terminal at the nashville airport uh, we are in the process of working on a blending and bottling facility for our bourbon and that'll have a tasting room uh, with it and a bottle shop and then after that we're looking to build a, a large distillery uh, you know, somewhere in middle Tennessee that will be able to produce the kind of volume that we want to for the long game in the bourbon. And so um, we plan on, you know, keeping the, the peg leg porker name in front of people and taking our products globally. And, and those are some of the goals that I have. And that's what we're working towards. And it's kind of one of those things. Turtle wins the race. We think that the person with the most stamina can last the longest and stay the most consistent will be here for generations. And that's what I'm trying to do. Awesome. Love that. Love that answer to that question. So, all right. So we're going to move the show into our closing segment, which we call under the spotlight. So the spotlighters, which is what I call my audience, uh, have been listening to Mike Ham and Carrie Bringle talk for almost an hour, almost. Right. Um, right. So what would be one, and we've covered a lot, we've covered a lot of things. So what would be one thing that you would want the spotlighters to walk away from this episode with you are under the spotlight? Uh, I'd like for you to walk away with the fact that barbecue is about having fun and it's about family and friends. And if you're not enjoying yourself and you're taking it too seriously, then you're doing it wrong. So um, the Peg Leg Porker brand is all about that. It's all about having a good time and not taking life too seriously. I, for one, know that life is short, but uh, I can tell you, take advantage of it right now and make sure that you live every moment to the fullest. That would be my advice to you. Love it. Love it. Fantastic under the spotlight segment. So um, if people need more peg leg porker and somehow they don't know how to use a computer because all you have to do is type in peg leg porker and you're going to find Carrie, what are some other links that people can go to uh, to get more of you and the brand? Yeah, you can go to peglegporker.com. You can go to the peg leg porker Facebook page. Uh, we've got an Instagram at peg leg porker. We've got a Twitter at peg leg porker. Uh, we'll have smoking uh, bringlesmokingoasis.com up and running very soon. And then we've got peglegporkerspirits.com is up and running right now. 
Awesome. Love it. And I will put all of those links in the show notes like I always do. Uh, I will also put my email address, themorningspotlight at gmail.com, and the website, themorningspotlight.com, in the show notes as always as well. Uh, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on with us today. This is our 85th episode, so it was was a milestone episode. You know, if if you're into that kind of thing, it was great to have somebody like you to come on the show and just, you know, share, share your experiences and share your wisdom with us. So I really appreciate it. Mike, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure and great to see you again. You too, Carrie. And hopefully next time I'm in Nashville, I'm texting you again and we're spending an hour in the BS corner next time. Yeah, of course. Awesome. Awesome. And the Spotlighters, thank you for listening and we will catch you next time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder that any views expressed in the Morning Spotlight are the views of the speaker and should not be construed to be the views of any other person, any employer, or any organization. Thank you. We'll see you next week.